Police Art Training and Response Podcast. This is Episode 9. As there have been no major changes to animal response in regards to the COVID-19 pandemic, ASAR Training and Response will continue their podcast to help you prepare your city and county for natural disasters. Join us as we talk to Jewel Horton, Manager of Animal Services for Pender County, North Carolina, and her experiences with animal control services during a disaster. Welcome back, everybody, to ASAR Training and Response Podcast. With us today is Carla Lewis, as always. Hey, everybody. And also with us today is special friend Jewel Horton. Jewel, how are you doing huh? today? Good. How are you guys? Great. Doing good. I, I called Jewel a, a close friend because she and I have been through so much together in the last four years. Um, we're practically family in my mind, so I'm excited <laughs> to actually bring her on the bot podcast to uh, talk a little bit um, about some of the challenges that, that she has faced in Pender County, North Carolina. Um, we're not going to get in too deep on some of the stories because we're saving those exciting stories for that ASAR Stories from the Field uh, podcast time. Uh, but we are going to hit some of the highlights and really dig deep, not only for our animal control listeners, but uh, also our emergency management perspective to talk about some of the challenges that we've experienced through some of the catastrophic flooding in that area over the last couple of years. So, Jewel, let's take a few minutes and uh, tell the folks about yourself and what you're into these days. So um, my name is Jewel Horton, and I manage the Pender County Animal Shelter, which is located in Burgall, North Carolina. Uh, Pender County is located on the eastern side of the state. We um, we're Beach County. We're the fifth largest county in the state, and we also have two major rivers that run through our county. So when we have hurricanes, we have lots of flooding. We get it off the off the ocean and then our rivers like to uh, flood us out as Eric mentioned and so when we like to go big or go home and so when hurricanes like to landfall on our county um, like Florence uh, last year we literally were over 70 percent covered in water and so when we flood we flood big and if it wasn't for groups like Eric and Code 3 um, we would have really been in a mess and not been able to help our citizens and our animals in our county. And I have been a part of the Pender County Animal Shelter for going on about six years. Um, before that, I was in the veterinary field for almost 17 years. And, you know, I have always had a passion for animal welfare and animal care. I kind of got thrown into the animal um, rescue as far as in disasters back in 99 with Hurricane Floyd before we had all this fancy training and and safe knowledge and handling. Um, and so I learned so much with Eric and his team when they came to help us during Hurricane Matthew in 2016. And it's just been um, a real humbling experience to run with the pros and to see how to do it and to do it right. And it's just been an incredible ride. And I can't thank you guys enough for coming to our aid and, and just educating us and, and helping us educate others. And, and getting the job done well and getting the job done right. You guys are amazing. Well, and, and we give a lot of credit to, to our partners with you because not only have, uh, yes, we've unfortunately had the opportunity to learn a lot of things together, um, but it has been an incredible educational experience for us as we continue to develop our best practice uh, work groups and 
so we can take our lessons learned from these experiences because they have been quite heroic in some instances when you're dealing with a flood zone that's 17 miles wide and includes two or three watersheds um, yeah. and there's people in every watershed um, it it really has given the the whole new meaning to catastrophic planning uh, on a large scale. And we've done it, unfortunately, we've done it better and better every time we've been out. Um, but we, we definitely, you know, have, have lots of lessons learned coming out of, out of your area, which brings, you know, there, there's one question I was trying to think about as I was going back through our partnerships. How did you even find Code 3 for the MOU or, or how did you find me to start? Do you remember? Um, I believe during Matthew, let me back up. My dad has always ha kind of had a hobby interest in weather. Um, and he's an amateur radio um, person. And I remember before Matthew came, he was one of those people that said, I think this is going to be a big one. I think you should prepare for the worst. And so kind of on the down low, I did. And um, in the back of my mind, I was kind of watching the emergency management pages and watching the Department of Ag and I vaguely remember seeing some information shuffling around on some emails about um, if any of the counties were going to need uh, additional responders or aid, um, that there were going to be resources available. And at the point that we started seeing those, those river levels so rapidly rising, um, I was very fortunate that our emergency manager, Tom Collins, who is also a close personal friend, um, he heeded the warning and sent up the request through the chain of command up to the state EM through Department of Ag, Mandy Tolson, and she got you guys for me. So that's kind of how that worked out. That's and great. I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that, that started this whole thing off. So that actually, yep. uh, for folks that remember uh, Hurricane Matthew, is that that was the Lumberton Dam failure that got so much attention and there were lots of people working Lumberton um, and we were, we were one of the few teams available. We were actually sitting in South Carolina when we were released and, and North Carolina picked us right up and said, you need to get to Pender County. And I had to look up, well, that's not Lumberton. It's no, you're going to Pender <laughs> County. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So. And you guys had a hard time finding your way in here, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, that that will be one for the record books when we were routed directly to you, and it was only supposed to be a three-hour drive, and that turned right. out to be a ten-and-a-half-hour day because we actually had gone into North Carolina, found out we couldn't get there from where we were yep. at. And we had to backtrack mm -hmm. into South Carolina, go clear to the coast, and come up through Wilmington. Yeah, it was crazy. It, it was crazy. You know, I think that – is really important too though and i'm sure you'll touch on this somewhere else is that you know when counties need assistance um that's the chain of command that you go through to get that type of help you know you go through your local emergency management your man emergency manager runs it up through the state eoc and then they work with the department of ag to bring in accredited teams such as yourself that way we're getting the right key players in the right places that can do the job and do it well and do it correctly and and that worked out perfect for us in both instances um and I, i'm sure you'll elaborate on that later but that that's the way that's supposed to work you know if you're if you're in emergency management you're not aware that these teams exist i mean they are out there and when you when you make that request to state emergency management they they know where to push that out to to get those people that you need and it was literally within a few hours we knew who was assigned to us and they're like they'll be here shortly you know the calvary's coming and it was awesome 
Yeah, that's really, really important, you know, for us, obviously. Um, personally, I, I am an animal control officer, and we just really try to push out that information to um, everybody that, you know, a Facebook plea is not going to get you the type of help you want. You need to go through the proper channels, and, you know, that help is available to you. It's just knowing how to get it there. So, Jewel, a little bit about uh, Hurricane Matthew. Was that kind of the first uh, major disaster that you were involved with? And maybe if you could talk just a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced and things you learned from that response. Uh, Matthew was my first one with this county. I did work Floyd in 99 um, with Pender County when I worked for one of the local vets. And then I have also uh, worked Hurricane Charlie in Florida and Hurricane Mississippi, I mean, Hurricane Katrina in Mississippi um, privately through some of the veterinary practices I was with. So I wasn't a total version to disaster and recovery and response, but Matthew was definitely the first time that I was kind of one of the lead um, agents as far as collaborative efforts, you know, bringing in teams, running reconnaissance, and handling all the influx of animals and the welfare and reuniting pets with owners. And that was very stressful and challenging. As Eric can probably tell you, we are a small group. There's only six of us at our shelter, and there's only um, five animal control officers for our county. So we get spread very thin trying to, you know, run our animal shelter for the county, run our Red Cross pet-friendly shelter, still provide some limited animal control services for our county, and then also go out in the field with, you know, teams like Eric's and do um, response for the disaster. And so that was definitely a challenge. And then being a very rural county, um, we have a lot of animals. I mean, and, and we're a county that doesn't have a licensing program, so we don't even have a good knowledge of how many is out there. But, you know, and Eric, you can correct me, you may even know the number better than I do, but I feel like in Matthew, I feel like the end number was somewhere in the in the three to 500 range between what we sheltered in the Red Cross and county shelter and what we took in off the river at the very end, like from start to finish, it was between three and 500 that we ended up running through both agencies from start to finish. And for an entity as small as we are, um, that's a lot for that small right. amount of staff. Right. Yeah, and, and talk about that a little bit, Jewel, because you were set up prior to our arrival. Um, the When Matthew happened, then the public starts to scramble, floods are coming, and you have you have the American Red Cross set up for mass care. But then not every Red Cross is set up to – uh, co-shelter or co-locate with animals. So in, in your county, you know, you get to call, hey, we're flooding. What is your shelter set up for them? Do, do you have multiple temporary shelters or, or what, how did that go for Matthew? So in our county, we, um, our county does set up multiple human Red Cross shelters, but we only have one shelter that is considered a co-location pet-friendly shelter. And at that shelter, there is always one animal control officer and one animal shelter employee that supervises that animal side at all times, and they're on 12-hour shifts. So essentially, I lose one of my employees um, for each one of those shifts. And then I also have employees that stay at my county animal shelter, which has about 100 cages, and they have to continue to care for those animals as well. So pre-storm, what we do is we try to um, pre-evacuate everything that is off of stray hold. So basically, if it's, 
you know, no longer on a 72-hour stray hole and it's not there for bite quarantine. We try to get all those animals adopted out or turned over to rescue so that we have as many empty cages as possible to handle the overflow. And then at the co-location shelter, we have um, CAMIT trailers is what they're called in our state. I don't know if that's a, a national term, but it's companion animal mobile equipment trailer. And that usually has somewhere in the 50 to 100 cages in it. And so we set up basically a, a secondary animal shelter to bring in animals with their owners so that they have somewhere safe to stay for the duration of the storm. And then a lot of times post-storm, as these people are rescued and evacuated, um, they come there with their pets. And then as teams like Eric come in, um, those animals that are brought in out of the, the flood zones and whatnot, the disaster areas, they'll come into the Red Cross shelter and to the county animal shelter. So essentially we're running two animal shelters for the entire county for the duration of the event. With the same amount of staff, you don't get double the staff for double the shelters, do you? We do not. We're very fortunate that usually Eric brings the cavalry with them. And so we've been fortunate <laughs> to have teams like Red Rover and IFAL that come in and also uh, will give us some assistance with sheltering. Yeah, and, and we've really been pushing hard on, on uh, planning for 2019 uh, with the latest FEMA resource typing, everybody's been very excited that the ASAR teams are typed now and animal controls are typed so they can be mission ready packaged. But I, I just spent the last week at the SUSAR conference, the state uh, urban search and rescue conference. And what we were talking about is the field activities can't be going on until the support pieces are in place to help them. Um, so if the sheltering isn't set up, if the transport and lily pad pieces aren't set up, and for those that aren't familiar with the term lily pad, that's our temporary holding spot as the animals come off the water or out of the disaster zone. They get to this temporary spot where we make sure we've got their address and, all, and as much information for that animal so it can be reunited. And then it goes into transport and then it goes into the shelter system for hopefully the owners to, to be able to find them. And even when there's just two shelters in the county, there were challenges with people coming out of the disaster trying to find their pets because we had good-hearted folks that wanted to try to help that may not have been part of the system and relocating those animals to what they thought was a better spot. Is that something you run into every disaster, Jewel? Wow, you're, you're so polite. Yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> that is exactly, and that's exactly what happens. You You have you know, what we talked about before, non, non-sanctioned teams that come into a disaster zone, um, and some absolutely come in with good intentions to try and help and don't check in with your EOC. And so, you know, they are taking animals back to their base camp, which no one really knows exists, and then they're shuffling them out to their personal shelters or their private rescues. And so then they're lost in the shuffle. No one knows where they are or who they are. And then you do have some blatant groups that come in with absolute no intent to reunite animals because there's a mindset that if you left your animal behind, you don't deserve your animal. And, and that is a very big challenge in these disasters and something that we dealt with on numerous occasions in both events um, was a lot of judgment, you know, that people made fast decisions about why someone did or didn't do something without knowing the whole story and you know, that's, that's not what our job is to do. Our job is to get those pets to safety and, and then let the sheltering team sort that out at, 
on the backside. You know, we get them out of the waters, we get them out of the disaster zone, whatever's taking place, the fires, the avalanche, whatever it may be. And then the sheltering team and animal control for that area, you know, that's their legwork to determine if there was some type of negligence or some type of cruelty or something like that. It's not for the responders to make that decision. And, and that's why you need to be very careful about having, you know, the good, the good doers come in there that aren't checking in with you and, and don't know that all animals that come off of this disaster zone go to point A or point B because that's how people lose their pets. And we lost a lot of pets in both events, and that's very sad. Yeah, and, and that brings up a great point. You know, people do have a tendency, especially when they get caught up in uh, a fire frenzy on social media, is create these judgments. And and remember, you know, pets get left behind for a variety of reasons. The event could have happened and the owner wasn't home and the pet couldn't be brought out. Or it was such a hasty event, the pet may have been scared, gone and hid. And for life safety, these people had to be evacuated. Maybe they just didn't have the resources at the time. And, you know, those of the people that meet us at the boat ramp or at the shelter and are basically camped out until we come back with their pet. So it, it's not always a neglect and cruelty situation. Not to say we don't occasionally run into that, but we, you know, handle that per the law enforcement protocols for that agency having jurisdiction. And, uh, um, you know, we ran into that during Hurricane Florence. Uh, where I was, had a team out that day. Jewel was not with us, but we had one of her staff with us as a guide. And we got to a property that was well known by both the shelter and, and animal control community. And it was one of these things that I sent pictures in. Um, here's the exigent circumstances for some animals, but here's other animals that they're okay. They're not terribly comfortable and it's wet around here, but nobody's going to you know, die in the next 24 hours if we're just going to be blunt about it. Um, and we had to make some tough decisions through law enforcement and the disaster protocols on, all right, what's going to happen from here and, and what's going to happen well into the recovery phases. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, that was something that I had to rein in because it is a very emotional situation. Um, you know, animals and animal people, I mean, animals bring out the best in all of us. You know, we get an animal rescue because we're compassionate and we love animals. And, you know, by day 23 out there doing what we're doing, you know, sometimes we can have a hard time getting ourselves in check. And, and I had my moments as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about, you know, making an opinion on something that we don't know anything about. And there were so many people who lost everything. And, and I was in their houses. We walked in their houses together, you and I. Um, and that was an extremely humbling, you know, event for me. I've done a lot of water rescue, you know, with you and, and, you know, recovery in other states. And that house that you and I breached entry in and we found those dogs floating on that mattress, that was a very overwhelming experience for me because I had not done a breach entry prior to that. Most of the animals I have recovered had always been, you know, rooftop or, you know, livestock or out in pens. And so when, when you breach entry on a home and you're walking through someone's life and it floats around you and you find their pets and then they come to the shelter and they're reunited and you have to look someone in the eye and you tell them everything they own is floating um, and it's all a loss, but you were able to give their animals back to them. They're, that is an amazing feeling and that's all they cared about. Um, I mean, you gave them back the most important thing and that's all they have left. And, and everybody deserves that 
that right. Everybody deserves that option. And and some people lost everything, and some people looked us in the eye and said, you know, thank God, you know, Fluffy's okay, but I have nothing left, and I have nowhere safe for Fluffy to go. And they asked us to find Fluffy a new home, and that's fine too. And we did that. You know, everyone that wasn't claimed um, that was, you know, a, a, a safe and healthy and friendly adoptable animal, we found somewhere for them to go. But, you know, a lot of these people, those animals, that was all they had left after that storm. And, and they deserved to get those animals back. And I, I can't think of a better thing in my life than being able to give that to them. And it, it's just overwhelming and humbling. And it still brings tears to my eyes when I think back to those faces and those kids handing their dog or cat back to them. Yeah, and, and that's where it's it's that remarkable feeling of, of reunification. And that's why we do what we do. Everything that we do, whether we're making a federal guideline, whether we're uh, enhancing a local capability, it's all to get these pets back with their owners when you boil it down to brass tacks. And, you know, I, I looked at Matthew, and when we came in uh, for Hurricane Matthew, I said, oh, we'll never see one that bad again. Um, but uh, during Matthew, we had security we, we, with the routes, you know, we had law enforcement there. We had the ability to kind of work within a confined area, even though we were in different watersheds in Florence. Now this was a whole different beast because you got your 30 plus inches of rain plus all your flooding. And now areas that we, that were dry for us in Matthew we're now completely flooded out and we were traveling miles and miles and miles before we even hit yeah. our mission scenes. So yeah. uh, along with the expansive flood and, and I use, you know, I remember coming out of the EOC and you telling me, yeah, the, the flood water 17 miles wide and we're like, okay, we're going to need an aerial view of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember. I no concept of what 17 miles wide looks like. Um, but, you know, what other significant, were, were there significant things that stood out between Matthew and Florence just besides the sheer size of it? Oh, uh, you know, Florence, you know, Matthew was a little easier in the sense that we weren't completely cut off from the rest of the state. There was still accessibility from the other side of the county so we could get resources in. At one point, you know, Florence had us completely isolated. Um, and so the only way to get people or supplies in was helicopter or boat. And so that brought challenges. And so there was, um, you know, a period of several days there that you, you were told no. <laughs> it was like, I need this. And it was like, nope, if it's not here, you're not getting it. Um, and and that was kind of a, an eerie feeling because that's not something, you know, I mean, I'm in my late 30s. But I don't know that I've ever had that feeling before of, you know, oh, we can't just run over to Wilmington. We can't run to Jacksonville, you know, or we can't run to Wallace. I mean, like, literally, you can't run anywhere. You're here. This is it. If you don't have it here in the central part of Pender County, you don't have it. Um, and so that was very different. And that much water made it very hard as far as, like you said before, Matthew was very concentrated to one area. Yeah, it brought challenges as far as security with law enforcement because law enforcement couldn't help control that area as far as um, keeping people out, you know, the looting. It was so widespread. It had our law enforcement spread everywhere. They were doing the absolute best they could to try to help. But, I mean, they literally had a 870-square-mile county that they were trying to cover from every direction and keep everybody safe and keep everybody contained um, and stop looting. And, 
keep people from trying to drive through waters and drive in roads that were washed out. You know, it just seemed like people just couldn't understand the concept that you couldn't go anywhere. You were stuck. They're like, oh, no, that road, that road can't be impassable. And they kept trying to drive it. And it was just unreal. Um, it, it, like I said, it's just, no, no, it can't be. It can't be. I can't be stuck here. But you really were. And so that was that was very different. And I think, you know, with Matthew, that side of the county is a very rural country side of the county and the people that were over there um i don't know it was, it was just different you know they they kind of came to terms really quick with what was happening and what was going on and they communicated with us pretty quickly uh about where their animals were and you know what we could get to and what we had to shelter in place and and what we could get out it seemed like with florence um we just, I felt like we were really just kind of chasing our tails over and over again. And I don't know if that was a lot of social media or, or what, but it, it seemed like in Matthew it was a lot cleaner as far as information, you know, getting to us and, and not having to backtrack as much. I don't know why that, you know, other than Florence was a lot bigger, obviously, but I just felt like, you know, the communication was a lot clearer in Matthew than it was in Florence. But Florence had a much bigger social media presence, and that may have had something to do with it, too. Um, because, like I said, the Matthew event was a much more rural, quieter side of the county, and and those people, those people weren't on social media blowing up what their situation was. Where with Florence, you know, it's kind of like the um, Melissa Lane horses. I'm sure you remember that. You know, no matter how many times we tried to say that we had that situation under control, um, everyone and their brother was screaming that those horses were dying, and so it it really just kind of Every time we turned around, somebody was calling us or messaging us or making us crazy about that situation. And it was really, it was really, you know, eating up our time having to put fires out over the same situation over and over and over. Yeah, and I think you hit it on the head. You know, social media in Florence was was chaos. And so it caused redundant calls to come in. It caused calls to be, you know, come in that we solved three days ago would resurface in, a, in another area. And they'd have to say, hey, did, was this taken care of? So uh, not to mention that it prompted a lot of, again, good-hearted civilians to get in the water and, you know, go out and think that they're going to go out and save these horses or save these animals, um, which we saw a lot of attempts uh, that were just such a bad idea. It wasn't even funny. Uh, right. So, and and at, really after it all, and, yeah. and, and at the end of it all, did those horses survive? Yes. Yeah, they sure did. They rode it out and, um, it, you know, yes, we all feel that need of, oh gosh, we got to get them out of the water. Um, but there were people in there that, that were doing some really innovative things. They'd taken a little rowboat, put some fresh hay in there, put some fresh water in there. Um, and even though these horses were uncomfortable, they did survive that flood. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think I think that was I think that you completely it's completely right. The social media aspect of Florence made made that a bigger challenge for sure, because we were getting calls from like the, the Department of Ag and and really some some big some big players wanting you know wanting us to verify and are you sure? Do you need to go back and make sure? And it was like, oh my gosh, we've done this. Yes, like it is okay. We've been there. We know. We know that's handled. Um, and while you don't think that simple phone call takes time, when you're when you're out there doing what we're doing, it does. I mean, when you have to stop for 15 minutes to verify something, that's losing daylight. And 
and those add up. So Joel, I was just sitting here thinking about my city and what I do for a living. And um, when I respond to disasters, typically travel. So I leave my, you know, leave my home, leave my responsibilities behind, and I can focus, you know, all of my efforts on on disaster response. But, you know, in your situation, this is where you guys live and you work. Maybe you could just kind of talk about the toll that um, this type of disaster and response takes on takes on yourself and your staff and just kind of how um, that type of situation progresses throughout a disaster. You know, for myself, I think I absorb the majority of it because that's who I am. Um, I try to get my staff rotated through so that they can get time off and they can go home or if they're rotating through the Red Cross shelter, they can get some R&R. Um, you know, for me, especially like when teams like Eric and them are here, um, I pretty much stay on the whole time they're here to make sure that that's going well. So like with Florence, I think I, I stayed on for 20 something days straight before I took a, a personal day. <laughs> And don't laugh at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, but, it's we're laughing like I, we're all that way, you know. I would right. be the same way. Um, you know, my I mean, my husband, you know, my home's only probably seven or eight miles from from the center of town. So I mean, my husband would come by with my son, and they'd visit or have a quick bite to eat with me. Um, I'm just very fortunate that I have um, good family and friends that you know I know everything at home is taken care of. Um, I have excellent staff that I can trust that I don't have to micromanage them as far as at the county animal shelter or at the Red Cross shelter. You know, they'll they'll call me if there's a major issue. Um, I can just kind of breeze in, breeze out, put out small fires, handle things via cell phone, um, but can stay focused on on the big the big issues like the the emergency response side. Um, but it's exhausting and you know these two events back to back and we say back to back it was 2016-2018 um i'm not going to say it hasn't had an emotional toll um it's been hard it's been hard on the staff you know that's a lot of hours um this, this is your this is your community these are your people you know i recently drove through some of the areas that were affected during florence that we you know did a lot of calls on and it was it was heart-wrenching it's it's like a ghost town. A lot of these people aren't coming back. And, you know, these homes look just like they did when we boated through there, um, you know, a year ago. And it's just the water's not there now. But it's sad. And, and so, you know, there's a little PTSD from that for sure. Um, and I think, I don't think that you go through something like this in your hometown and don't have a little bit of that. You know, one of the families that stayed with us at the Red Cross shelter the entire time it was open that lost everything, they came to visit the staff last week. And, you know, it was it was really interesting because the staff was really excited to see them and they were just so happy for them to find out that they finally got their new house um, at the one-year mark. They were just getting their new home brought in and put on stilts and finally entering that that you know now we're recovering you know they've been living in campers and tents and whatnot for a whole year and now they're just starting to get a home again and it was really nice but uh, it is not a walk in the park and if if you're in it for the right reasons and i think most of us are i don't think any of us are in it for the money then it is going to be hard on you and it's and it's hard to walk through your town and see that type of devastation and destruction and not feel something and if you don't 
I don't I don't know how you do it because <laughs> mm-hmm. I need to talk to you because I don't know how to turn it off because it's hard for me and and I'm a pretty tough person but that was like I said I hadn't been through there in a long time and I drove through it just a few weeks ago and it was it was really it brought tears to my eyes I'll tell you that it, it doesn't it doesn't look like the same place well and Jules being very modest about about the sacrifices her and her staff made you know during both uh, hurricanes, but you know, recently in Florence, because Florence was so big, we had such a large footprint there at the emergency shelter. You know, and and forgive me for the Pender County folks that are listening. Um, I'm not meaning to exclude anybody. I just don't have the list of names in front of me that I wanted to. But to see people like Bree and David and Tabitha, um, who you know were you know Bree and David were working the midnight shift. They were staying at the shelter almost every night. Bree hadn't been home for a week, seeing her kid and her husband. Um, you, you know, Hugh had to come see you because uh, you weren't <laughs> going home at all. And that was the time, though, if you wanted to find anybody, go in the shelter at midnight because the entire crew was there to provide care for these animals 24 hours a day. And I'll, <laughs> I, I, and I love bringing David to death. And, and I'll tell you why is because uh, there was one night. And, and for those that don't know, we had a huge footprint. We ran out of bunk space for the responders. One of our responders was able to get this giant RV in. And I mean, this RV was a million dollar RV. And this responder brought food and the whole nine yards. And we were having to bunk people inside this really nice RV. And Dave and Bree were sitting out one night and everybody else was in the RV eating food. And I said, why don't you guys come in? They said, oh, oh no, we can't. And I said, why can't you come in? They said, we're dirty. And I said, I don't (laughs) care if you're dirty. You are family and you are coming in. And, you know, they went so far as they got to the the RV and you push this door and it goes, whoosh, the space age sound when the door opens. And they were taking their shoes off. And I'm just like taking them both. I'm like, get in there. Stop it. Just get inside. (laughs) These guys had, had sacrificed everything for these animals and their community and still they felt like, you know, we can't go into these places when they were some of the most deserving people out there that should have been in there. Yeah. I, the tails of the RV, they were just like, it was so fancy. We've never <laughs> seen people so fancy. I was like, oh, good Lord. They were so funny. You know, it's, it's stuff like that, though, that makes those events livable because, um, you know, during the day you have people coming in there every day looking for their pets and they're crying and they're sobbing and they're, you know, they're just telling you that, you know, they can't get answers and they don't know if their pet's dead or alive and they don't know what the status of their home is. And they, I don't know, if, if you can't, if you can't let off a little steam at night and, and be with friends and be, you know, I don't know, like I said, the night shift is a hard shift because, you know, you're supposed to stay awake and, and be there for the people and watch out for the animals. But it's also kind of a nice shift because you can also kind of let loose and, and just kind of talk and vent and it's, it's a good shift. And, and it, this was a great crew. And, and that's, you know, one of the things I love about, you know, you guys, Eric, is, is that you guys always bring, you know, good people that are, um, are very relatable. And at the end of the day, you know, no matter what happens out there on the water, the good and the bad, everybody can kind of sit down and just be people and let that off. And so the next day you kind of go back out recharged and you're able to go. And, and I think that's really important because, you know, it's hard on everybody. I mean, everybody's sacrificing something. Everybody's away from their family. You know, everybody's seeing things that they haven't seen before. And we're all taking a leap of faith when you go out there and you hit that water that, you know, that you've got this and you're going to make it home that night and everything's going to be okay and that you're helping as many as possible. 
And um, and it doesn't always it doesn't always go well. You 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 don't always get to save them all. And those those calls and those conversations are hard to have with people. Mm-hmm. And that those are some of the hardest conversations I've had. Um, and so to be able to have those types of evenings with you guys after something like that, you know that that's a remarkable thing, and it's a blessing, and we appreciate it. Yeah, and, and, you know, we really didn't talk about the daily grind for for those, you know, 10 days that we were really pushing hard where your day started at 6 a.m. or maybe even a little before, and then right. you'd come to the shelter or already be at the shelter, and then we go to the EOC, and the Emergency Operations Center is where we get any updates and catch any mission calls, check in for the day, see if there's any changes, and we'd spend an hour there to, to get briefings, and then... Um, you know, we'd get back. And by the time we got back, the team leads usually had the boats ready to go. And for the most part, we were packed up to to hit our missions. But with, you know, three different locations and two different watersheds, we were having to divvy up who went where. Um, and by the time we hit the water, it was probably 10, 1030. It was starting to get warm. It's never nice and cool. Plowing into dry suits uh, for our own protection and then we work until dark. And, you know, we came out in the dark a couple times. Oh, my and God, yeah. We're, we're going we're gonna to share one of our stories during ASAR stories from the field uh, where we came out and Jewel came into the middle of an armed disturbance. Um, and I ran like a little girl and Jewel went over there and throat punched people. So uh, but we'll talk. About, <laughs> no, she didn't. Um, but we, we will talk about that along with the porch ponies and some of the other memorable events uh, in one of these next episodes. Um, but then we get back. And it was dark, and we'd have to decon. Jewel would have to catch up on what happened the rest of the day. I would be catching up with the teams that were coming out of the other watersheds. By the time, you know, we got dinner, it was probably 8, 30, 9 o'clock. People hadn't showered yet. Um, and by the time people started to hit their bunks by 10, 30, 11 o'clock, I'd walk into the shelter. Jewel would be there debriefing with her staff. We'd talk, and I'd go do my paperwork about midnight. And if either one of us were in bed by 1 a.m., that was a win for the day because we were going to start all over six hours later. And and we did that for a long time straight. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. It's always good. And, and I tell people that, that deploy with me, you're going to have to get used to watching me run around in my boxer shorts because it's the only way I get dry after being wet all day long. And yeah. usually in a, at the temporary shelter, most of us were just the team and I stayed out of sight from the public. But I remember one night I had a conference call and, I, and my boxers are not, you know, risque or anything. They're just regular boxers. It looks like I'm wearing black shorts if you don't know what I'm wearing. But there were, there were two people that came in from – um, to help with sheltering. Oh, they, they came from rescue ranch and they came in that night and I forget who introduced them to me, but here I am talking on the phone, having a conference call in my underwear and two people I've never seen before come up and shake my hand. Well, hi, how are you? You know, and <laughs> kind of got to get used to these unusual, uh, you know, situations and know that, yeah, Eric might be running around in his underwear late at night. So just to deal with it. So. That's right. Well, Jewel, what about, um, what you have been through, could you give advice to other people in your situation? So we do a lot of talk about disaster planning in animal control and in sheltering. And until you're actually faced with that, that situation, I think people really don't know what it's like. So what would be your biggest takeaway to people in, in our field for disaster planning for their cities? Don't wait. I think people need to, I'll back up. Chain of command is, is important. And, and I understand 
you know, NIMS ICS, and it's there for a reason, and it, and it is a good thing. And I'm not telling you to go out there and, and go above your supervisor, but it is important to know your chain of command and understand it, but it's also important to know that your emergency manager knows that you, as far as animal welfare, who you are, you exist, what you do, and what your role is in a disaster. Because what I hear out in this area, in southeastern North Carolina, over and over in, in adjacent counties is that, you know, oh, well, nobody, nobody in my county cares about the animals. You know, our 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 emergency manager manager isn't gonna isn't gonna get us help. Well, I me, mean, have you talked to him about it? Well, no. Well, I me, mean, I don't know. I, I can't accept that because I'm not that person. You know, I mean, I'm lucky that I, I know our emergency manager. But if I didn't know my emergency manager, I would still go over there and take him out to lunch, and he would know who I was. I would say, Hey, I'm Joel Horton. I'm the shelter manager. I would like to know, you know, in the event of a big disaster, what is what is the plan for our county as far as the shelter and animal controls involvement with animals? You know, are we going to request mutual aid from a neighboring county? Do we have MOUs with other animal controls on the other side of the state? Because let's face it, if there's something major happening in my county, having an MOU with the county next to me is probably not going to work because whatever's affecting me is probably affecting them. But I can have an MOU with another county, you know, 200 miles away, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's a lot of counties around here that do that. You know, uh, Brunswick, which is another coastal county that is adjacent to us, they have an MOU with Durham County, which is, you know, central North Carolina. And they use them for mutual aid with sheltering when something goes wrong. That's a wonderful plan to have in place. That's something you can have ahead of the storm. It doesn't require, you know, any any type of special government intervention. That's just, you know, your county manager, your emergency manager, you know, having an agreement written up and, and the reciprocating county agreeing, and it goes both ways. You do it for them, they do it for you. Um, you know, having that under, you know, everyone's like, oh, the cost, the cost, the cost, the cost. You know, a lot of times this stuff doesn't cost anything. Um, I think a lot of people just assume, A, it's too expensive, or B, there's no help out there. And so, like I said, there's taking taking someone higher up on the chain out to lunch and having a conversation really doesn't cost you anything but lunch and a little bit of time. And you'd really be surprised how far it can get you. I'm not somebody super powerful or important. I mean, most of the time, I've just gone up and had conversations with people and said, hey, did you know about this? Have you heard of this? Did you know this is what this county does? And they're like, no, can you get me the information on it? And then we rock and roll. And that's really all it is. It just starts with a very basic conversation. Waiting until the 11th hour to get help, sometimes it works. And we were lucky in Matthew that we got help. But sometimes it doesn't work out. And we've seen other counties that had, you know, major infrastructure failures and, and a lot of lives were lost that could have been prevented, you know, had those MOUs and had those conversations taken place. And so I personally would much rather be the person sent back and said, hey, you know what? Five months ago, I tried to have that conversation with my higher-ups, and they blew me off. Then to be the person that said, well, I never tried, um, because I had to be able to sleep with my decisions at night. And so I'm going to know that I tried everything I could to know that my county, I tried for my county, for my pets and my people to do everything I could in the event of a disaster to prevent loss of life and to do what's right by them versus just saying, oh, well, nobody cares, or oh, there's no money for it, because you just don't know. There's all kinds of grants 
And let's just face it, again, people love animals. Even if it was a money thing, so many people are willing to donate towards animal welfare stuff. You know, when um, we had Eric come out and do um, training for our entire staff in 2018, I swear it jinxed us. Um, <laughs> he came out and got all of my staff and animal control staff, you know, certified. And that was a, a couple of simple grants got, you know, issued to us and some and some online Facebook fundraising, and we covered the whole thing. People love that type of stuff. So it, it's not as complicated as, as we make it out to be sometimes, and I think that's really important. People love to see preventative measures put in place, and they will they eat it up and they'll pay for it. And it looks it's great PR. And it's great in the end when something happens that you have all that stuff in place and lined up, and it makes it so much easier. I mean, we were we were rocking and rolling in Florida. Like we literally looked at our emergency manager, like you better pick up the phone and call Eric. It's time to roll. And he starts shaking his head. He's like, "Oh Lord!" <laughs> <laughs> right. We're we're, we're going to get him to, to call just a smidge sooner yet, if it ever happens again. God bless. I know, and that that is one of that is a challenge, you know. And and I I don't I'm not an emergency manager, so I don't know what what the mindset is, but it is, it's very hard to get them to pull the trigger fast because they're always worried about having assets that they don't need sitting around. Right. But that's, that's not my call. Right. I did. I asked for, I asked for you three days earlier than I got you. <laughs> <laughs> right. No. And, and those are all wonderful points. And, and, you know, Pender County has been written into some of these disaster history books because we learned so many lessons um, because there were, challenges and and stories and the social media i mean there were there were so many after action reports uh, that continue to circulate uh, as we take pieces of it and try to enhance our response and we're we're going to look forward to bringing jewel back when we talk in depth about the porch ponies um, the mm. porch pony story is actually going to make abc news or not ABC News, is going to make ABC Saturday daytime TV on Hearts and Heroes. And there's going yep. to be two stories featured, um, both out of Pender County, both out of Hurricane Florence, um, that just made a huge national impact. And the Porch Ponies actually is spawning some research on why we see some, some behavior out of these large animals when we try to swim them, um, some of the physiological responses responses that we see um, so we can do a better job by these animals and have better expectations on how far a, a compromised animal really can travel uh, in certain circumstances and we're developing for 2020 a specialized eight-hour large animal boat operations and rescue course that's going to do nothing but look at some of those studies and and work with some of these specialist teams that have decent boats um, to say, if you come across a, a horse, a cow, a pig, a uh, different type of hoof stock, what really are your reasonable options um, that does not include loading them onto an airboat? Uh, <laughs> and, um, and what are the what are the options that we know have high probability of failure? In all our training, we never give people the silver bullet. We always give them tools to be considered to use in their situation because every situation is different. So we're looking forward to um, talking through some of those stories in detail a little bit more. And by then we'll have some more video up um, through, our, through our production team to capture some of these moments. And, and we may even have that snippet from ABC that people can go and watch the story in depth so they can see what we're talking about. Awesome. Well, Jewel, any other parting thoughts of wisdom before we throw it to Carla? 
No, I think I'm good. This has been a real walk down memory lane. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jewel, thank you so much for joining us today. And to all our listeners out there, um, subscribe to our podcast for future podcasts. Uh, Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And always check our website at acertraining.com.